Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how Melchizedek was a true friend of Abraham because he took time to look at his friend and see what he needed and encouraged him. Download this message on iTunes or at friendshipwithgod.org. Yeah, Abraham gave a tenth. And just notice the last two words. He gave a tenth of all. He gave a tenth of all. Someone, you know, you've heard this before. Someone asks, you know, should I tithe on the net or the gross? <laughs> and the answer is, do you want God to bless the net or the gross, you know? And Abraham tithed on the gross. <laughs> it really was the gross because the net was zero after this. He took it and he gave it all away. I mean, he gave it to a king of Sodom. So he gives Melchizedek tithes of all as the gross, okay? And now, so he's giving to God. So Abraham is giving to God, only he's giving to a person, Melchizedek. You know, you, maybe you heard this before. It's the man who was asked one time, how much do you determine how much you give to God and what you should keep to yourself? He said, that's easy. I put all my money in a basket. I throw it up in the air. God takes what he wants, and whatever he doesn't want falls back down. <laughs> all right, the point is, we can't give to God that way. Okay, we're throwing money up in the air. We give to others who are in God's work, like Melchizedek. But we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to hold those accountable that we give to. That's what it means to be a good steward of what God has given to us. Now, verse 21. We come to verse 21 with the opening words. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram. So with these words in verse 21, God wants us to think of the great contrast. This is what the setup is in this verse. It's setting up for us the great contrast between two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. Melchizedek, king of Salem. So in verse 18, we see the king of Salem brought Abraham bread and wine. In that first act, we see the king of Salem, he cared about Abraham as a person. And he sought to minister to Abraham first. That's what was on his mind. Abraham has needs, just like the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, Matthew 20, 28, where it says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, Melchizedek was like the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be ministered unto, to receive, but Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he, he did not come to Abraham wanting anything. He didn't come to Abraham trying to make a deal or get something. He came to Abraham wanting to give Abraham something, bread and wine. So the first words out of Melchizedek, you know, Salem's mouth, is that, here, Abraham, here's the bread, here's the wine for you. Eat, drink, I give this to you. See, that's what was, that's Melchizedek. Now, the contrast of that is verse 21, where the first words out of the mouth of the king of Sodom are, give me, give me. He's thinking of himself first, is described in 2 Timothy 3, 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous. So in contrast with verse 18, where the king of Salem is identified as the priest of the Most High God, and that was attractive to Abraham, verse 21, with the words, give me, is then the king of Sodom is identified as someone who's selfish. And selfishness was repulsive for Abraham. Because anyone who sells fish stinks. Sort of funny. All right. <laughs> All right. So in verse 21, we have a contrast with verses 19 and 20. Because in 19 and 20, we have the praise of God that's falling from the lips of the king of Salem, Melchizedek. 
But in verse 21, there is no praise of God falling from the lips of the king of Sodom. In verse 21 is a contrast because in 19 through 20, Melchizedek, king of Salem, he's clearly thinking about God. That's what's on his mind because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So this is what he's talking about, what God has done. But in verse 21, the king of Sodom, he's thinking about earthly things. He's thinking about what's going to happen with all that stuff and people that Abraham has brought back. So the king of Sodom, he doesn't care about the wasting time talking about God or thinking about God. He only cares about the earthly. So the king of Sodom sees Abraham. He gives an eye on Abraham, and he's watching him, and he sees him give the tenth of all that he's got. And the king of Sodom, he thinks to himself, boy, here's a, here's a generous man. Oh, this Abraham, he's a generous man. Now's my chance to move in. And he thinks, oh, there's money to be gotten here. We just, I just hit the mother load in Abraham. And so therefore, he steps forward with his proposal. He says, give me, give me. So the king of Sodom, he's leaning on the generosity of Abraham with his proposal, give me the persons and take the goods to thyself, in verse 21. Now, According to the law of that time, the Code of Hammurabi, according to the Code of Hammurabi, which is in force, Abraham had a perfect right to keep both the persons and the goods that he had captured in war. That's clearly stated. So we've seen that Abraham was, was struck here with the contrast between Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and the king of Sodom. And so when Abraham gives a tenth of all that he has to Melchizedek, he showed that he had an allegiance to the king of Salem, to Melchizedek. He was aligning himself with him. And like Abraham, when we give to God's work, we put our vote of allegiance to, to God. And so now we can picture Abraham turning to hear the, the king of Sodom. He turns and Abraham sees the king of Sodom and he's reaching out his hand in a desire to, to, to get what Abraham has recovered. And the king of Sodom, he strikes no chord of agreement in Abraham. He's trying to strike a chord of greed, and it ain't working. He's not striking that chord in Abraham. So the king of Sodom, he's not able to get the resonance out of Abraham. And that's a good thing about Abraham. When we don't, when we don't have in us greed, then that doesn't resonate. These offers, give and take, doesn't resonate or like Abraham. So he hears this offer. Abraham hears this offer. Give and take, and Abraham's no interest. Why? Why does Abraham have no interest? Because with the friendship and the blessing of Melchizedek, Abraham feels completely rewarded. He said, I've got it. And Abraham feels satisfied. He's satisfied with God. He's satisfied with the fellowship of God's people. And so he looks at the king of Sodom, and he sees, okay, he's offering me a temporary pleasure. As a matter of fact, I didn't mention this before, but the word Sodom, Sodom, in Hebrew means burning or scorched, for obvious reasons. So Abraham saw from this king of burning what it says in Hebrews 11.25, you can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Now, it was a great victory. This, what happened here when Abraham resisted this, was a great victory for Abraham. And because he wasn't interested in the physical treasure, that he brought back. He was more interested in the treasure of the friendship with God. And that was a battle for Abraham. That was a victory. That was a greater battle and victory than Abraham had over the five kings, just like the hymn, Take the world, but give me Jesus. Now Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he meets Abraham. He gives him a blessing and the prayer. 
And Abraham feels very rich. And the king of Sodom, he meets Abraham with the proposal of give me the persons, take the goods. And it makes Abraham feel empty inside. In other words, confronted with the contrast, Abraham is declaring, I choose Melchizedek. I choose the close friendship with him over our common interest in God. And that makes me feel satisfied. And I reject any friendship with the king of Sodom and over any potential common interest of wealth. Not interested. Now, verse 22. This is the first time now, finally, all this is going on. We haven't heard anything from Abraham's mouth. He hasn't said anything, but finally he speaks. And we see he speaks here. And what happens? Well, he spoke, we said before, without words when he gave the tenth. But now he's going to say in verse 22, he's speaking to the king of Sodom. So verse 21, he's faced with the temptation, give and take. And, but God had prepared him for that, as we saw with Melchizedek. And that's what God does. He always prepares. As it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taken. Now you can think of that as grabbed you, seized you. You, like personally you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above, over the top, that you are able, but will with the temptation also, in other words, the temptation is going to come, but he'll also give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So God knew that there are, had to be a Melchizedek in order for Abraham to be able to bear the temptation, and he brought him. He's still under the influence of of Melchizedek, Abraham is. And he tells the king of Sodom that he's lifted up his hand to God, and now Abraham, he joins together the name for God that he's used to, Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital, with the new name for for Melchizedek's new name of God, Elion, God the Most High, and he puts the union together, and he says, Yahweh El Elyon. He says, the Lord, the Most High God. It shows this kind of union between Abraham and Melchizedek when he does that. And then he repeats the second new title, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. Now notice what he says in verse 23. He says, I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and I will not take anything that's thine. He saw an issue. In reality, as we've said already, Hammurabi's code made it his right he, it was very clear he had a right. Abraham had a right to that. And he saw the king of Sodom, though, on the other hand, viewed everything that Abraham had taken back from the thread to the shoe latchets and everything in between as still belonging to the king of Sodom. Abraham understood that. And so he saw that if, if he kept what he had a right to keep, then the king of Sodom would brag and say, well, I made Abraham rich. And Abraham did not want, he wanted to deprive the king of Sodom, from that opportunity. So Abraham gives up his right. So what do we see him doing here? He gives up his right to what was really his in order to block the king of Sodom from saying that he made Abraham rich. Abraham had a right to everything, but Abraham gave up his right in order to to not compromise. And in verse 24, he said, but there's a limit. There's a limit. And the limit was what's already been consumed in the past is in the past. So Abraham said that his position to not take from the spoil did not apply to what had been eaten by the group on the way back. And he made it very clear to the king of Sodom that that he was not going to pay for that, what they had consumed on the way. And so what we've seen in verses 23 and 24 is Abraham saw that because the king of Sodom was going to brag to make him rich, Abraham gave up his right to what was rightfully his. And he drew the line and said that it didn't apply to what the man had already consumed. And by refusing to take any of the spoil, Abraham felt the freedom. He felt the freedom within. 
And I understand how he felt. Because what Abraham said and did in verses 23 to 24 was great help to me personally. It was about 50 years ago, 1960s, when abortions were illegal in California, before Roe Roe v. Wade. And and, and the day was a Saturday. It was a hot Saturday afternoon. I was 17 years old, and I was standing in the kitchen of my father's house. Very expensive house in Bel Air. Nobody's on food stamps in Bel Air. Very expensive place. And he had just gotten home and went to the refrigerator and taken out a, a can of cold beer. And it was a typical Saturday. That Saturday morning, like any Saturday morning, downtown L.A., desperate young pregnant girls with money in hand, no credit cards, money in hand, unmarked door in downtown L.A. And my dad, along with other obstetrician gynecologists, performed illegal abortions all morning long. And so he had come back from that, and now he was standing in the kitchen, and he was drinking this can of beer. And I hated what he was doing on Saturday mornings. And I was angry over the abortions, and we had exchanged words. And, and I used the term blood money. That's the last words I actually remember saying. Because then I saw the anger flash in his eyes, and his hand with the can of beer hit the side of my head, and beer was in my eyes and dripping off my face. And he was enraged at that term, blood money. And then I saw the drawer open with the butcher knives inside of it, and he came after me with a knife in his hand. And so I reached up and reached and I grabbed his wrist, and he dropped the knife, and I stormed out of the house. We never spoke about it again. I never used that term blood money again. I never brought up the subject of abortions again. But it made such an impression on me because I thought, on that Saturday afternoon, there he was coming to kill me with a knife, and I reached up and I stopped him by grabbing his wrist. But on Saturday morning, there were those helpless babies who he also came out with a knife, but the difference was that those babies could not stop him by reaching out and grabbing his wrist. But I never forgot that afternoon. Obviously, I'm telling you about it today. And the term blood money just haunted me. So when I got married to a Gentile, uh, he cut me off financially, and I felt a kind of a strange freedom from blood money. I felt like Abraham did. And later, when my dad came to visit us, he reminded us that he had given us uh, a station wagon and a piano, and we never paid him for it. Well, I mean, it was a gift, but anyway. So <laughs> at the time, it was a gift, and now it was, we owed him for it. So, you know, we weren't rolling in cash. We had to take a loan and, and give him 2500 bucks for the car and $1,400 for the piano. You can come over to our house, the piano's still there. And so later he came back a second time, and he claimed we never paid him for the piano. But, oh, no, not Cheryl. She produced the canceled check. So. <laughs> then he said that I should go back. I should pay him the money that he spent raising me. So I thought about that for a while. As I thought about it, I really didn't know what to do. And, and, and I really didn't know, should I pay him for the money that he spent raising me? And I prayed to God for an answer for what I should do. And do you know God gave me verse 24 as the answer? As as if God said to me, a car and a piano is one thing. But just as Abraham drew the line of what was consumed was consumed. So save only that which the young man have eaten. You don't have to pay back for what you were consumed growing up. I consumed a lot too. But anyway, so because of that verse, I had perfect peace to say no. Then when it came time for my dad to die and to go to the hospital to die, He was living with his girlfriend in Rancho Mirage. Now, the logical place to go 
is to the local uh, Eisenhower Medical Center, very good medical center in, there in the, in the desert. Or, at the most, maybe an hour and a half drive back to Cedar sinai where he had been on staff. But she drove him all the way down here, three hours, all the way to Scripps Green Hospital in La Jolla, where he had never been before. Why? Because his attorney was in Del Mar. And so conveniently, she could make this little stop at the attorney's office, just on the way to the hospital. And at the attorney's office, she got him to change the will from everything for going to me, because I was his only child, to everything going to her, and then I would get $25. So on about August 1st, 1991, my dad's will was changed, and on August 4th, 1991, he died with everything going to his girlfriend. Only thing is, she never even sent me the $25, but it doesn't matter. Now, (laughs) after that happened, the attorney was just outraged. He was outraged. It was very clear what was going on. He was just outraged, and he told me, he said, all you have to do is just lodge a protest. I can have that will overturned, and I can get all that wealth to you. And we were not wealthy at that time. And that was a sizable amount of money. But the term blood money came back to me. And I was troubled. And I didn't know what to do. And as I thought about it, and I prayed to God for an answer of what I should do, you know God answered that prayer with verse 23? Verse 23 settled the matter once and for all. It's as if God said to me, look at your father Abraham and do what he did when he said, I will not take from a thread to a shoe latchet, and I will not take anything of his nine, lest thou should say I've made Abram rich. As if God said to me, you got me, you don't need it. And that's exactly what we're going to cover next week, when God is saying to Abraham in the next verse here, in chapter 15, verse 1, where God said, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. He was saying, Abram, you got me, you don't need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us through your word and help us, Lord, to, to uh, take in and, as you said, Lord, to hear the word and do it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tom, you mentioned that your father drank alcohol growing up and many use it as a coping mechanism. How are we as believers supposed to resist the temptation of being drawn in by liquor? You know, the Bible gives us a word, and this word is the word know. It's the word K-N-O-W. It's what we know or what we need to know. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, what know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. What this verse is telling us is that as believers, we must know that our body is different after we've received the Lord Jesus Christ. The one universal creed of all the church down through the centuries has been one statement. Jesus is Lord. There's many things that many Christians don't agree with, but true believers all agree that Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of our bodies. And so our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost, which and God is in us, and we are not our own. Why are we not our own? Because he is Lord of our lives. It says in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, Again, the word know, for as much as ye know 
that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So we know that we have been purchased, 100% purchased. That transaction was made. We were bought. We were paid for in full. That means that from the tip of our head to the tip of our toes, every single part of our body has been bought and paid for by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are not our own, as it said in 1 Corinthians six nineteen. We are the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that Those eyes of ours are not our own eyes. They've been bought by the Lord. And uh, those eyes are to be used by him to look for opportunities for, for bringing the help of God to needy people. That brain of ours is not our own brain. That brain is to be used by God for, for God's purpose so that we think God's, his thought process, what his thought processes are, the, that we think of how we can bring the gospel to a needy person, of how we can, we can bring the healing of of the word of God to those who need it. That's what we do with the brain that God has bought. These hands are not our own hands. These hands have been bought. They've been paid for. We are to do the work of God with these hands. Our feet are not our own. Those feet of ours have been bought so that we are to go into, into as God would send us to be used by him, to be an ambassador for God, to do the work of God. Every part of us has been bought. And what God has bought our whole body for is not to make it drunk with liquor. And that's why he says in Ephesians 5, 18 through 21, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Okay. But instead he goes on to say, but be filled with the spirit. So our bodies, which have been bought by the Lord Jesus Christ, are to be used to be filled with the spirit of God, not to be made drunk with wine. And as we fill ourselves with the, with the Spirit of God, then and we speak to, it says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. In other words, you think of what does liquor do? When a person gives in to drunkenness, he yields his whole self to the liquor. The liquor takes over the person. The person begins to to, to babble, to speak, or to, to free will, all this kind of thing. Just go on and on. And, 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 and sometimes they're happy. Sometimes they're depressed. It depends. But by contrast with that, when we give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ, we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit, as opposed to liquor. It's not by accident that liquor is called spirits, because it's also similar. A person yields themselves to the spirits in the bottle, but the believer yields himself from the Spirit from heaven, the Holy Spirit. And what
what happens is that we just speak to ourselves, but we speak good things. We speak to ourselves the Psalms of David. We sing hymns that magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. We're happy. We sing spiritual songs. We just make melody in our heart to God. We sing to God when we are filled with the Spirit of God. These are not just melodies and catchy tunes and things like that, but we're actually actually singing as a choir to God. We're lifting up our hearts and we're singing to the Lord. What a joy it brings to us. Happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, all these things come. And the next thing that comes is that we begin to give thanks always for all things unto God, not just for the good things, but also for the afflictions because we we say, oh, thank you for that affliction. If I had not been afflicted, I would have not have sought you. I would have not have come to you. I would not have found you in this great new way. So we give thanks for all things unto God, to the Father, and it's all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So religion becomes reality, this great transformation where the religion of just the the tradition and the cold and sterility of it becomes the reality of from our hearts singing and making melody to the Lord. And then it has a great effect on other people. It doesn't, the liquor doesn't cause us to fight other people, but in verse 21, being filled with the Holy Spirit causes us to submit ourselves one to another. So peace comes in the fear of God. So that's what it means for us to view ourselves as bought by the Lord Jesus Christ and be filled with his Spirit. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Remember, we've got our monthly resource, three Tom Cantor books in one book. We've got it for a donation of $30 or more for your support of this radio ministry. Call us today, 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051 to get this monthly resource. 1-800-247-3051.